The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to focus and concentrate on the Word of God, and to let God the Holy Spirit teach us His Word and challenge us with what He has to uh, teach us this evening. So let's bow our heads together. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you that we can gather together to study your word, that we live in this nation under freedom, that we can continue to freely proclaim the truth of your word, that we can send out missionaries. We thank you for a nation that continues to support Israel. We continue to pray for the safety of Israel in these turbulent times. We continue to pray for our president, for our nation, that you would guide and direct the leaders. And, Father, we pray that... Uh, as citizens of this nation, that we would, as believers, would continue to function as salt and light, having a positive impact on this nation. Father, now as we study your word, we pray that you would uh, illuminate these things to our thinking, that God the Holy Spirit would uh, make these things clear to us, and that we would be able to concentrate on the study this evening, putting aside the issues of tomorrow or earlier today or this week that we may Put our attention upon you and what you have to teach us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. And tonight we're going to do another overview. Now it's been, I don't know, three weeks, four weeks. I had to go back and listen to the last 15 minutes of the last lesson just so I'd know what I taught the last time. And as I got into this, I realized that as we concluded our study in chapter 4, that we need to go back and take a brief correction in terms of our structure and organization. So I have a slide up here that we'll we'll work through in terms of review so that we orient to our next section. The first section in the epistle goes from 1-1 to 2-4. Actually, 1-1 through 4 is an introductory prologue that orients us to the basic uh, theme of the book, which is that God has now spoken through Christ Jesus and relates that to his position, his current uh, uh, position and as being seated at the right hand of God the Father and his authority. There is a what I call a didactic exposition. Now, last time, somebody asked me what didactic meant. This is related to the Greek word didaskalos, which means teaching. It's an instruction. And what's interesting is how we can look at a book like Hebrews or James or 1 John, and these are, I think, and many many commentators and scholars think, are written out forms of a of an oral presentation of a sermon. And this gives us an idea of 
what a, a sermon or Bible class was like in the apostolic period. That it's not filled with a lot of uh, illustrations and stories and a lot of things like that that you often find in modern homiletics classes, but that it is a development of and a commentary on Scripture. And especially, you especially see that in Proverbs, I mean in Hebrews, because there are so many quotations from the Old Testament that are woven into the uh, structure of the book of, of Hebrews. So there is a teaching where he, the writer goes back to Old Testament passages and expounds on what these passages mean, how they apply to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, his present session in heaven, his role as a high priest. And after he finished this, this teaching, there is a practical exhortation or challenge within which there is a warning. Now, in, in the first section... You have a an exposition from actually 1.5 to 14 following the prologue. And then there is a short challenge and warning in chapter 2, 1 through 4. Then the second section begins in 2.5 and the writer goes back and he picks up ideas, a couple of ideas that he mentions in that first didactic exposition. And now he's going to unpack that, and so he focuses on who Jesus Christ is. Now, we're going to see another point here in terms of of exposition and teaching, and that's a principle that's familiar to everyone here. I almost hesitate to mention it, and that's called repetition. I knew I'd get a chuckle out of that. Um, notice what happens in, in this, this uh, teaching section. It goes back to talk about... Uh, Jesus Christ in relationship to the angels, and God has put everything in subjection under the Lord Jesus Christ. And then it ends that section, that first paragraph in verse 9, by saying that Jesus was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, actually that he, uh, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he by the grace of God might taste death for everyone. Now I want you to just be reminded of that phrase, taste death for everyone, because we're going to come back and reference that a little later on this evening. And then he goes on to say, For it was fitting, or for it was proper, for it was correct for him, that is the Lord uh, uh, Jesus Christ, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing, uh, excuse, excuse me, for it was fitting for him, that is God the Father, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, and bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation mature through suffering. And we have this development of, of, the, of the main idea in this section, the fact that the second person of the Trinity had to be made uh, flesh. He had to be true humanity. He had to be just like you and I. And he had to go through the same process of sanctification or maturation that we go through. He set the precedent. He was the pioneer or the author of uh, our sanctification. And he goes through that same process such that having been made like his brethren, that is you and I, I'm down in verse 17 now, therefore in all things he had to be made like his brethren that he might be, in order that he might be, for the purpose that he might be, a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God and making propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself has suffered being tested, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now that's a key idea, that he, the Lord Jesus Christ was incarnate, that in his humanity he had to go through those same kinds of tests, he had to go through adversity in the same way we do, and he had to go through the same kinds of tests that we go through, because he had to grow and he had to mature before he went to the cross. And that prepares him for his present ministry as a high priest. Now, the writer stops his thought there. That's what he has developed in terms of his didactic exposition. But he's going to come in and give a challenge and a warning to his readers. And that challenge is uh, summarized as uh, from the quote from uh, Psalm from, from uh, Psalm 95, Today, if we, you will hear his, his voice, don't harden your hearts, that there is a rest 
for us that there remains a rest for the people of God, and therefore let us be diligent to enter that rest. That's the summation of the warning. That don't harden your hearts like the Exodus generation did. There remains a rest for us to enter into. Therefore, be diligent, work hard, labor in terms of your spiritual growth so that we can enter into that rest. That's the warning. Then he comes, he finishes that by talking about the Word of God being alive and powerful as the evaluator, the judge of our spiritual life so that we have this tool in the Word of God to evaluate where we are spiritually in our advance. The section ends with verse 13. I didn't make that clear the last time. I want to come back. I got distracted by the fact that the chapter reference is in the wrong spot. But the break in the structure of the book is at the end of chapter 13. I mean, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13. 414 begins a new section. Now, this new section goes back, picks up a couple of loose threads. What are those loose threads? The high priesthood of Christ. And we pick up those same ideas that are first mentioned back in 2, 17 and 18. He's a high priest. He goes through the same kinds of suffering and testing that we go through so that he can be a, a compassionate high priest. He is there to come to our aid in times of testing. That's developed in verses 14 through 16, which we covered a couple of lessons back. Then he's going to go on and unpack this idea of priesthood. But the priesthood of Jesus Christ is distinct from the Old Testament priesthood. The priesthood of Jesus Christ is a priesthood that's based on the order of Melchizedek and not the order, uh, not the Aaronic order or the, Mo- or the Levitical uh, priesthood. So he's going to develop that. And he just gets started in this, to give you the broad bird's eye view, He just gets started in this and mentions it in verse 6 and again in verse 10. And then he just stops. It's an abrupt stop. And he just lowers the boom on his readers. He just, he just, he just begins to lambast them for their spiritual density. That they're just not going anywhere and they're so dull of hearing that they don't really understand what he's getting at. So before he can get to to this development of the idea of the Melchizedekian priesthood and why that's important, he just just starts reaming them out in verse 12 because they have become spiritually dull and they lack discernment because they're going, they've just ended up going through the motions of, of learning the Word and being involved in a local congregation without the Word having any real impact in their thinking, their spiritual growth, and their spiritual maturation, so that rather than demonstrating spiritual maturity, they are on the verge of just giving up completely on the spiritual life and folding up and going, and going back in, into Judaism. So he warns them of the danger of this, that you can actually uh, reach a point, if you go into a regression in your spiritual life, you can reach a point of no return, where you can't recover anymore because you get so immersed in carnality that uh, God is just not going to allow that. And then he goes through a positive challenge, that you're not really that way. I'm confident that better things are going to happen. That's verse 9. And where does he end? He ends in verse 20, talking about the forerunner who has entered heaven before us, even Jesus, having become high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So we had this mention of the high priest back in 2.17 and 18. That idea is picked up again, starting in uh, 4.14, leading up to just mentioning the order of Melchizedek, then he stops and he, he just reams them out for their uh, spiritual obtuseness. And then as he concludes that warning and challenge, he, he comes right back to the topic of the Melchizedekian priesthood. And that's where he starts the next section, which is section 4, In chapter 7, verse 1, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham. So you see how this theme works through this. He takes 
from the end of chapter 2 into chapter 7 and 8 before he really starts unpacking the significance of Christ's high priestly ministry. Before he gets there, he has to make sure he has their attention and that they're going to focus on what he has to say. So there's this this challenge and rebuke and reproof that comes in in the middle of this development, and which is a reminder of what the Scripture is all about. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that the Word of God is... Uh, all Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching. That's the didactic part. For reproof, he is reproving them. He's demonstrating what biblical reproof is. And then it's correction. He points out where they're in error and what they have to do to correct that. And then he instructs them positively in the path of righteousness. So that gives us sort of the... Uh, bird's eye view of what's going on here. That he is, as he goes through this, he constantly is loading the reader up with biblical content. There's no fluff here, as we've seen. There's just uh, content piled upon content in the process of feeding the sheep. So this gives us a biblical example of what Jesus meant when he was talking to Peter, and he said, if you love me, you'll feed my sheep. Three times there in John 21, 15 through 17, Jesus challenges Peter with his future role as an apostle and a leader in the local church that he's to feed the sheep. And that's a uh, fascinating passage to work through, but it demonstrates the priority of the pastor. It's to feed the sheep, not to uh, build a church. Jesus also told Peter, as we studied uh, this last Sunday, that it's on this rock that I will bi- that I will build my church. Jesus said He's going to build the church, and the pastor is supposed to feed the sheep. And the problem we've gotten into today is most pastors are trying to build a ch- build a church, and they're letting the untrained, rather uh, ignorant, uh, non-professional, non-trained Sunday school teachers feed the sheep. And that's why most sheep are starving to death and don't know it. And that's why most sheep are ignorant and lack discernment and fail to grow, just as the kind of situation we have here is because they're not internalizing and assimilating the Word of God into their thinking. They're not learning to think biblically. And that's the challenge that Paul presents in Romans 12, too, that we're not to be conformed to the thinking of the world, but we're to be renewed. There's supposed to be this overhaul just a complete exchange of Bible doctrine and divine viewpoint for the human viewpoint that's in the soul. The word there has to do with a qualitative restructuring of our thought. And as I uh, frequently point out, a problem that we have with most of us is that it's hard enough just to think without having to think about our thinking. And see, it's not only the content of our thought that can be a problem. It's, it's just the methodology of how we think. And that gets into some really heavy stuff. And that's why it's uh, important that I know some of you, many of you have listened to In fact, I think there's somebody here who's working on uh, Charlie Clough's framework series for the second time. Now, when you've worked through that, yeah, wow. Uh, when you've worked through that about three or four times, you'll start to understand just what it means to have a complete restructuring of your thinking so that you're beginning to think and, and, re, and respond to the events in life from a biblical framework as opposed to a, a human viewpoint framework. It's not easy. It takes us all of our lives to, to uh, start undoing a lot of those patterns, the habit patterns of thought that we acquired when we were young just because of the carnality of our own of our own thinking and the comfort comfort factor of human viewpoint thinking. That's that's a real challenge because it's it's comfortable to think in terms of human viewpoint because it gives us a easy uh, tool to rationalize and self justify uh, sinful thought patterns. And I'm not talking about you know thought patterns of lust or that kind of thing, which is what you normally hear in a 
some sort of Baptist church or superficial evangelical church, but I'm talking, talking about thinking in terms of a human viewpoint uh, epistemology where your value system is basically built upon uh, human systems of, of rationalism and empiricism and letting the, the cosmic system define basic uh, vocabulary instead of letting the scripture define that basic vocabulary for us. One example is in last week when, when Charlie was here, he talked some about law. And if you're going to talk about law or freedom or liberty, you don't start by going to Enlightenment thinkers like John Locke or Montesquieu or uh, people like this who did, who did some tremendous development in terms of concepts of liberty and the role of government, but their starting point wasn't the scripture. Their starting point was empiricism or rationalism. And if you're going to start, if you're going to talk about law or freedom or liberty, those terms must acquire their definition first from the Word of God. You go to the Word of God to get an understanding of that, and then you develop it from there so that the Word of God gives you that biblical framework from which you can read with discernment uh, human writers who may have many good things to say, but they also have a lot of human viewpoint in there. So it's only from that biblical framework that you can go in and read uh, different uh, human writers who are writing from various philosophical systems and understand what has value and what doesn't have value. Otherwise, you end up just uh, feeding your own prejudices about law or liberty or politics or government. So we have to learn to think biblically, both in terms of the content of our thought and in terms of the structure of our thinking. Now, I know that some of you just think that, well, I can't mentally sweat like that. Yeah, it's a lot of work. But we it's the whole process of sanctification. And this is just one of the many tests that we have to go through as we grow and advance in the spiritual life. And it's the purpose of the pastoral ministry to teach people, to give them illustrations, to open this up so that they begin to realize that there's more to the Christian life than just coming to church and singing some praise and worship choruses and, and all of a sudden feeling good about themselves and about Jesus because they got those, that endorphin rush from clapping their hands and listening to the drums and the tambourine music and trying to identify that with uh, spirituality. And that's where we are today in most churches, and we wonder why the evangelical church has no impact. is because they can't think biblically. And the sad thing is most pastors can't think biblically, and they don't even have a clue what it means to try to think biblically. They don't have that, that vision. Well, the writer of Hebrews certainly challenges us as we go through uh, all of his development, realizing that uh, there's some difficult stuff here. But the real challenge is that he views much of what he has said already that we've spent the last 40 hours on as the basic elementary principles of Christ. We get that in one. So everything that we've studied so far, the writer of Hebrews says, well, this is just basics, folks. This is just the ABCs. You've, had your, you've gone through your primer on Christology now, so let's leave this behind and really press forward. Most Christians today look at this and think, this is advanced stuff. It's so heavy. I, 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 can't, I don't understand all this. So let, let's get back to some real basics. Well, the writer of Hebrews considers everything he said so far to be basic. So gives us a new, new vision of what it means to grasp the Word of God and to think biblically. Now, as we look at the structure of this next section to give us that bird's eye view, this third section begins in chapter 4, verse 14, and goes down to the... Uh, Actually, that should be 15.11. The uh, practical challenge or warning begins in the uh, 12th verse. So it goes from uh, 4.14 to 15.11, 
and then the challenge goes from 1512 to 620, within which there is a warning in 6, 4 through 8. Now, and this is the first time we've seen that the warning and the challenge aren't the same section. That the warning is just just a segment of the overall challenge. It's very, it ends on a very positive note in verses 9 through 20. Nevertheless, it is a challenge to them to apply what they've been learning, that they can advance and grow. So it begins with this uh, conclusion in verse 14. Therefore, uh, because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. There's a causal participle at the beginning of verse 14. It should be understood in the sense of, therefore, he's reaching a conclusion. Now that we've gone through that last section, we're going to draw a conclusion and an inference, and that inference is related to the high priesthood of Christ. Therefore, because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, he goes on to give the challenge. Let us hold fast, that is to hold on to, to not give up, to not uh, relinquish. Let us hold fast our confession, that is our doctrine. Now this is another important point. For the writer of Hebrews and the writer of Scripture, doctrine isn't what we might think of as abstract theology. See, there's too many people in our modern world that think of doctrine as abstract theology. And so doctrine somehow in the past 30 years picked up a negative connotation in a lot of circles that, oh, they're just so heavy into all that doctrine stuff. I want more application. But the biblical concept of doctrine includes application. If you separate application from teaching, then the teaching just, you end up just some sort of abstract uh, theological, uh, intellectual, entertainment. And the Bible is never abstract theological uh, stimulation. It is all about learning about God so that it changes the way we interact with his, with his creation. Theology that isn't practical isn't biblical theology. And so the biblical concept of doctrine is very similar to the way the term doctrine is used in, in our military that it includes not only what we might refer to as the abstract theological framework, but extends all the way to its practical application on a day-to-day basis on the battlefield. And so doctrine includes both the underlying rationale as well as its final application. And that's why the the writer challenges them to hold on to their confession that is their uh, belief system, their doctrine, don't give it up. That's the uh, problem that they're facing is due to pressure and adversity and, and increasing persecution and rejection from the Jewish uh, establishment. They are on the verge of just chunking their Christianity and going back into Judaism. And this is why uh, he had warned in the first challenge in chapter 2, verse 1, We must give the more earnest heed to the things we've heard, that is, the doctrine we've been taught, lest we drift away. So he comes back and he's picking up that idea to challenge us to hold fast to our confession, and then he gives a reason. And that reason is introduced by that uh, word for at the beginning of verse 15. It's the Greek word gar, which indicates the, the giving of a reason. I'm now going to explain why... You shouldn't give up your doctrine. Why you shouldn't fold and go back into Judaism. It's amazing what I see today is the number of Christians that fade out as they go down the final stretches in life. We live in a city right now where there are uh, several churches that have historically been uh, fairly decent Bible-teaching churches. In the last 10 or 15 years, due to various influences, they've sort of been... Uh, drifted more into the contemporary worship, praise and worship kind of thing that's dominated those churches, what you find is that a, a generational split. And the older generation that's, uh, let's say, mostly 60 and over, who can remember a time when church was more focused on content and less on tambourines and drums and guitars and having a rock band up in front, and they remember hearing, you know, even in a Baptist church, they, they were taught a little something, 
And there was some growth, and there was a little more teaching. It wasn't just stimulation and entertainment. So what's happened in some of these churches is, as I talk to people who have gone to those churches, I say, well, what's happening over there? Well, the attendance has really dropped off. A lot of people have left. Well, where are they going? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't know. They're not showing up over here. They're not necessarily showing up over here. A few of them are here. A few of them are there. A few of them are in our church. A few of them are in a couple other churches. But they disappear. What happens? Well, they get disenchanted with the church. They get disenchanted with Christianity. They get tired of seeing a battle. And they just seem to drop out and stay at home. That's the kind of thing that was happening to these Jewish believers. They were, they were going through this adversity, and rather than continue to run the race, continue to fight the fight, continue to stay in the spiritual battle, they were just going to gradually drift off to the sidelines and give it all up. And so they're challenged to hold on to their doctrine. Why? Because we have a high priest who can... Uh, encourage us, who can strengthen us. He's been through the battle as we are. He's not one who can't sympathize our, uh, with our weaknesses, who can't come alongside in the midst of our struggles, but he was like us. He's tested in all points as we are. Therefore, let's go boldly to the throne of grace, because the right hand of the Father is our high priest, our advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he's gone through the same kinds of struggle, rejection, adversity that we're going through, and He is there to give us strength, aid, comfort, and sustain us in the times of difficulty. So what we learn from this is that the ascension of Christ is not just some you know, interesting little doctrine that gives us some mental stimulation as we start unpacking all of its uh, uh, different references in the New Testament, but it is vital for, uh, for encouraging us to hang in there when the battle really heats up. So we learn several things from this. First of all, that Christ's ascension is the basis for present encouragement and strength in difficult times. His ascension becomes the, the, the foundation for, for the writer of Hebrews' challenge to people to hang in there when things are difficult. Uh, the ascension is not just a doctrine talking about the fact that Jesus has gone to heaven and he's sitting there at the right hand until, until he, the Father says it's okay to come back. There is a, a practical reality here that he is at the right hand, ready to come to our aid and to strengthen us in difficult times. Second point, Christ's ascension is the culmination of his victory over sin and death. It's the culmination of his victory over sin and death on the cross. That he, he died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, then he was buried, he rose again on the third day, but it is the ascension that is the Father's final approval, acceptance, when he goes home to be with the Father, and this is when he ascends to heaven. And Ephesians 4, 8 and following went back to Psalm 68, 18, and picked up on that ascension uh, imagery when the ark was taken to the up, ascended to the top of the Temple Mount as a picture of God's victory over all of Israel's enemies, and that imagery is used to communicate what happens at the ascension of Christ, that he has had victory over all the enemies. Well, if the enemies have been defeated, then that certainly encourages us that even though it may not feel like those enemies are defeated, it may not feel like the battle's over, but the battle's won. It's just a mopping up operation, and this is to give us the opportunity to grow and mature to prepare us for our future ministry and service with the Lord Jesus Christ in the Millennial Kingdom. Third, this means that evil, the sufferings, the horrors, the adversity that we face on a day-to-day -day basis in a fallen world is only temporary. All this that we go through is just temporary. The battle has been won, and we have a glorious future to anticipate. All this flows out of an understanding of the present session high priesthood of Christ. Fourth thing we observe is that this means that he's going to come back. He's going to return. John 14.3, he said, he said that he was going to go and prepare a place for us that where he is we may be also. So the ascension 
reminds us that there is a future home and destiny for us with the Lord Jesus Christ. John 14.3 and then Acts 1.11, the angel said that he left and he will return in the same manner in which he left. Fifth point, as a human high priest, he can sympathize. There's empathy. There's a desire to help us in the midst of our difficulty because he's gone through the same thing we've gone through. There is this uh, the factor that at the right hand of God the Father is a human being who went through the same kinds of tests that you're going through. It's not some other kind of creature. Therefore, he completely understands what you and I go through as we face these struggles. Sixth thing, his high priesthood, his ascension to the throne gives us direct access to God. This has never happened before in human history. We're so used to that in the church age, we forget how radical this is. That you as an individual believer have direct, immediate access to God the Father on the throne as He is governing the universe. And we have a special ear, a mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't pray to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't have to go through any saints, and we don't have to pray to Mary. We have the Lord Jesus Christ who is there as our, uh, as the one who strengthens and helps us and is there as our intercessor so we can face the struggles of life. That's the challenge. He brings in this idea of the high priesthood. Now he's going to develop it in 5, 1 through 11. He talks about the qualifications. Jesus' qualifications as a high priest. In the first four verses, he's simply talking about being qualified as a high priest. He's not relating it uh, specifically to Jesus yet. He's just talking about any human high priest. And he explains the qualifications of a high priest. A high priest is appointed to his place in office. He doesn't appoint himself. He's appointed by someone else in authority. Second, a high priest is to represent man to God. He's appointed for men in things pertaining to God. This is the primary uh, role of a high priest is to represent man to God. The primary role of a prophet was to be a spokesman for God to man. But the primary role of a priest was to represent man to God. Third, in that representation to God, he offers gifts and sacrifices for sin. That's the role of a priest. He serves by offering gifts and sacrifices for sin. Fourth, he is, as a mediator, one who, uh, one who has compassion, or literally it's moderation and objectivity, to those who are ignorant and those who are going astray. The ignorant are those who just don't know any doctrine, and those who are led astray who are those who have gone off the course are in carnality and are need to be brought back onto the path. So this is the role of the priest. He can deal with them in compassion and in objectivity. Fifth, the reason the human high priest can do this is because of his understanding of what people go through. He has the same problems. He has a sin nature, and the human high priest can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray because he also is subject to weakness. And the word there is the Greek word asthenes, meaning spiritual, uh, spiritual weakness. So because he has problems with the sin nature, he's able then to come alongside and help those who are ignorant and those who are off the course. Along with this, uh, he does not glorify himself. This is the fourth verse. No man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So the human high priest is appointed to his position by God. He doesn't appoint himself. It's not, he's not in it for self-glorification, but in following the pattern of Aaron, he is chosen by God. So the writer of Hebrews takes in these four verses outlines the basic role, function, operation of a human high priest. Then he's going to apply it to the Lord Jesus Christ. And in verse 5 he says, in this same manner also, and and thus manner also, Christ did not glorify himself to become the high priest. 
It wasn't a matter of self-glorification or seeking some sort of special privilege. Just as Aaron was appointed by God, Jesus Christ is appointed by God the Father. And then he quotes two verses from the Old Testament, Psalm 2-7 and Psalm 110-4. And he quotes them. We've already seen them two or three times each in this, in this uh, epistle. He quotes them to show that the appointment of Jesus Christ to his position came from a higher authority, God the Father. You're my son today. I have begotten you. It is God who appoints him to that position. And second in verse 6, you're a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. He chooses both of these verses only at this point to show that Jesus Christ is appointed by the Father. He's not glorifying himself. The Father's appointed him and chosen him. But he specifically quotes from Psalm 110.4 because it brings in the type of priesthood that the Lord Jesus Christ has. It's not the priesthood based on uh, the tribe of Levi. It's not a Jewish priesthood. It's a broader uh, universal priesthood. It's a priesthood based on the priesthood of Melchizedek. And we will... Go back and review that as we go through this. And then in verse 7 he says, Who in the days of his flesh, and the days of Jesus Christ's flesh, when he was in during the incarnation, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. This is talking about the intense suffering that the Lord Jesus Christ went through on the cross. The intense adversity and he was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, verse 8, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Have we seen that already? See, he's going back. He's picking up that sanctification theme from the middle of chapter 2. That even though he's the son of God, he had to become humanity and go through the same tests and trials that we go through to go through that process of maturity. In verse 9, having been matured, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And as we've seen in our study this word salvation, that is not justification back here at the cross that has this future orientation, it's the culmination of the whole process that begins with justification, goes through sanctification, and ends in uh, ultimate sanctification and glorification in terms of our eternal destiny. So the focus here continues to be on where God is taking us in our spiritual life in preparation for that future uh, role in reigning with the Lord Jesus Christ as kings and priests. And then in verse 10, he repeats this idea that Christ was called as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And then he just breaks off in verse 11, of whom we have much to say. I've got a lot to tell you about Jesus Christ and his high priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. And it's hard to explain. This is difficult doctrine, but you're so wrapped up in carnality and and your own uh, self-justification that you've become dull of hearing. And I can't even teach you yet, so you've got to straighten up. That's his argument here. Since you have become dull of hearing. And then in verse verse 12 through 14, he rebukes the spiritual immaturity of the readers for their failure to apply doctrine, their failure to grow and advance spiritually, and to exercise any kind of biblical discernment. Now, biblical discernment is the application of doctrine to the choices and decisions in life. Now, the choices, don't, don't super, I'm not going to invent a word here, don't make that superficial. I was going to say superficialized, but I don't think that's a word. Don't make that superficial. When we, think of, when we think of choices, we often think of choices between that which is right and that which is wrong. But the biggest problem that most of us face is, that, is choosing between that which is good and that which is excellent. And we have to exercise discernment, not only in the choices we make, how we spend our time, where we go, what we do, but it's also in terms of what we think and how we think and it, it goes to a much more profound level. And we live in an era where 
we're so surrounded by this superficial and it's so permeated thought about the Christian life that we fail to probe deeply in our thinking. Every area of life in the creation is designed by God. Therefore, there's nothing that you can think of or approach in life that doesn't have its starting point with a framework from the Scripture. I don't know what your job is, what you do in your work on a day-to-day basis, but whatever it's in, whether it's in investments, whether it's in, in building, whether it's in technology, whether it's in some form of manual labor, whatever it is, the Scripture provides the starting point for thinking about that area because in some area you are working in some way in your job, your career, your profession, your avocation, whether you're a wife and a homemaker or whether you're, you're working in a professional environment, whatever it may be, you are involved in bringing some sort of order to the disorderly chaos of a fallen world. And God, because he's the creator of everything, says something about everything within the framework of the Word of God. So we have to probe this more deeply. But we live in a world where we've, we've taken this, we've made it, the Christian life so superficial, or we've restricted it and compartmentalized it to just our spiritual life, that we've divorced it from all the other things that we do in life. And if you're involved in education, you're involved in the process of teaching students about reality, about history, about uh, language. All these things are addressed by the Word of God. So a philosophy of education involves an understanding of the human soul, its makeup, its strengths, its weaknesses, the problems of sin. So educational philosophy is, should be governed by an understanding of what the Word of God says about the nature of man. Yet how many teachers have taken the time to work through a biblical anthropology to understand the impact of sin on the learning process and how that affects teaching and instruction and taking somebody from a position of ignorance to a position of knowledge. That's just one example. We don't think that way. We have applications and just I'm going to do something. It's moral or immoral. But that is really a superficial look. And the writer of Hebrews is... is digging so deeply in terms of application that he recognizes that we've got to leave behind just what we think of as basic theology and the ABCs of understanding who Christ is so that we can go to a different level. Because if you are going to rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom, then maybe you need to think through a biblical philosophy of political theory. So you can be properly oriented to leadership, to ruling and reign, to all these different categories. See, you never thought about that before. There's just so much to probe. That's why I, I, I don't get the chance to do it much anymore. But I used to love to read the Puritans. Now, I might disagree with their theology in a number of areas, but they at least understood the fact that the Word of God addressed every area of life, and we have to probe every area of life deeply and and profoundly in order to understand how God addresses everything. We've lost that in in modern uh, evangelicalism. So the writer of Hebrews is rebuking them for their spiritual immaturity because they're so much mired in carnality they can't think biblically anymore. They just absorbed a lot of, uh, ac- of teaching as academic knowledge, but it hasn't permeated their soul under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit to transform them internally, the transformation from gnosis uh, to epinosis. And so he rebukes them for being dull of hearing, for not having this internal transformation, renovation of the thinking, and he says, look, you've had enough time. He says, for though by this time, literally because of the time, you ought to be teachers. You've learned enough doctrine, you've been exposed to enough doctrine, you've been exposed to enough Bible teaching, where all of you should be able to teach this material. But you can't do it. Not only can you not do it, but I have to go back and put you on spiritual pablum because you have been in a uh, regressive state of uh, spiritual decline. Now you've come to need milk and not spiritual 
spiritual food. As a result of that, as a spiritual baby again, you are unskilled in the word of righteousness. And you're, at the end of verse 14, he says, and you're not exercising your uh, discernment, biblical discernment, for both good and evil. So there's no application. And now that you're facing all this external adversity, you just want to give up and, and go hide somewhere, curl up in a spiritual fetal position, and let the spiritual battle pass you by. So the chapter 5 ends with this uh uh, confrontational tone and the sixth chapter then begins with a warning and this is one of perhaps the most debated passages in all of scripture and you always find people who are of an Arminian persuasion that means they uh, they part of, part of that means that they don't uh, believe in eternal security that was what was interesting in going over to uh, Russia as a Russian Baptist put the locus of the conflict between Calvinism and Arminianism on eternal security. If you believe in eternal security, you're a Calvinist. I don't care what else you believe. If you believe in eternal security, you're a Calvinist, and that's a bad thing, according to the Russian Baptists. So they will go to a passage like this, and this is one of the uh, key ones, to show that you can lose your salvation in verses uh, 4 through 8. That's the... The warning. So in the first three verses, he says, Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ. Uh, and we have to deal with the participle there and the significance of that participle. And I think it's a conditional participle. Therefore, if you leave the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, you know, going on beyond that, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and a faith toward God. And he gives three pairs as he goes through this, uh, six different objective genitives in the Greek, but there, there's three sets of, of, or three sets of two. Repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And this repentance from dead works is to change your thinking and behavior from production of human good to production of divine good. Then the second pair is instruction about baptisms, and that's going to be kind of interesting to deal with. Instructions about baptism and laying on of hands. This deals with the role of ritual, legitimate versus illegitimate ritual in the Christian life. And then the third pair is of the resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. So that leads us to, another, again, a future orientation. And then in verse 3 he concludes, This we will do if God permits, recognizing that ultimately God is the one who is directing our lives. And then he says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if they fall away to renew them again to repentance, since they crucify again for themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. And there are many... People who come to these passages see you can lose your salvation. But the terminology here, first of all, it all refers to the same group of people. You have a series of six participles or five participles that are all governed by one article. So that indicates that it's one group. It's not talking about different things for different groups of people. All of them apply. All these participles describe the same group of people. And the terms that are used, such as being enlightened is as a... Uh, used in Hebrews 10.32 in reference to regeneration, tasted the heavenly gift and tasted the good word of God in verse 5, it, it really communicates almost the wrong image. Remember back in chapter 2, I pointed out earlier that Jesus tasted death for everyone. See, that word taste indicates for us is just a sampling. You know, we go to the... Uh, Go to the grocery store on Saturday morning and they've got all those samples everywhere and you can just go along and you can just take a little taste of this and a little taste of that. And None of that has any calories, by the way. And so we think of this word taste as just getting a small sample. That's not what the word means. When Jesus tasted death, he fully immersed himself in full 
spiritual death, separation from God the Father in terms of of, uh, bearing the sin of the world. So tasting means to, the Greek word guomai means to fully uh, experience something. So they have fully experienced the heavenly gift, and they have fully experienced the good word of God and the powers of the age to come. All of these terms refer to what happens at salvation. So they're genuinely justified. But there is the reality that even though we are justified, regenerate believers, we can fall into um, a serious carnality. And if we stay there long enough, it can threaten any future and jeopardize any future spiritual advance. And this is what uh, John refers to in 1 John 5 as a sin unto death, that eventually you can become so carnal and so uh, de- uh, deteriorated in your spiritual life that there is no possibility of reversal. And apparently in their historical context, they were going back into Judaism and becoming part and parcel of the enemies of Christ who crucified him on the cross. And in fact, that term enemy of Christ is, is a term that Paul uses in Philippians chapter 3 to also refer to this same kind of uh, spiritual failure and spiritual regression. And then in verses 7 and 8, there's a illustration a uh, positive illustration of blessing in verse 7, and negative illustration of, of cursing or condemnation in verse 8. Verse 7 talks about the believer. It uses the agricultural imagery of the earth taking in the rain that comes upon it. That is, uh, the rain is a picture of God's instruction and revelation, and the, uh, the earth is a picture of the believer who uh, takes in the word, the nourishment from the word, and as a result, under the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, produces fruit, produces divine good, and there is blessing from God. And on the other hand, there are those who don't respond to the rain, and the earth produces, and their life produces thorns and briars, that is, human good, and it's rejected, and it's near to being cursed, and whose end it is to be burned. Now, that's not burning up in the lake of fire. That's probably burning up at the wood, hay, and straw at the judgment seat of Christ. And we'll see that when we go through the passage. So there's a definite warning here that uh, where are you investing your life today? Is it in preparation for the future, or is it going to burn up at the judgment seat of Christ? And then he ends the warning, and he has this very positive note. He says, but we, beloved, beloved indicates that they're saved. Agapetos only refers to believers. But, beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation. That is, because you're oriented to the future, personal sense of eternal destiny, these things will, will accompany your spiritual growth. For God is not unjust to forget your work and your labor of love, which you have shown toward his name, and that you have ministered to the saints, and you continue to minister." And we desire that you will show the same diligence. The emphasis is on perseverance and hanging in there until the Lord finally takes you home and not becoming sluggish, verse 12. And then he uses an Old Testament illustration from Abraham, that God made a promise to Abraham, and Abraham stuck with it. He didn't give up. There was perseverance. This is the true doctrine of perseverance, that if you as a believer hang in there to spiritual maturity, then you will reap the reward of a full inheritance, as Abraham will. He didn't give up. He didn't fail. He didn't falter. He didn't fall by the wayside. And then this relates to our future uh, hope or confidence. Verse 19, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. And that hope is a word that is loaded with the future. It is a confident expectation of where we are headed. It, that future orientation, that personal sense of our eternal destiny, provides an anchor for the soul during present adversity. An anchor stabilizes a ship in the midst of stormy seas. So uh, it provides an anchor of the soul. And there's a focus on the presence that is Lord Jesus Christ behind the veil, and it takes us right back to the doctrine of the high priesthood of Christ and sets us up for the next section. So that's our overview. There's some fun stuff 
in the next uh, couple of chapters. And so we will begin with uh, an understanding of the priesthood in verse 1 of chapter 5 next Thursday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you that we have a high priest who has uh, fully uh, entered into human history, that he is a uh, he is true humanity, and he has uh, endured and had victory over all the tests, trials, difficulties that we go through. Therefore, he is a compassionate high priest, one who is ready to aid us, to encourage us, to strengthen us. And that this is uh, to prepare us to rule and reign with him in eternity. Father, we pray that you would challenge us continually with the principles that we study, that we might not lose sight of where you're taking us in our future destiny. We pray that as we think more of our future destiny, it will impact our thoughts, our actions, our priorities today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.